week we found that the problem with Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamon was the influence of paganism. The same is true with Thyatira, and we're going to skip that today because I want to get through these congregations this week. But these last congregations, one of them has no problems, and the other two have differing problems. And so we begin with chapter 3 tonight, verse 1, and it says, To the angel of the church of Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so what we have here is the same formula as we saw last week. He's going to begin referring back to the vision of the Son of Man, this judge, to let them know that this is the judge, and he's telling them that this is an eternal judge, the final judge, and there is, from his judgments, there is no appeal. And Sardis was really a wealthy city. And we should note, as we read on, that there's no mention of persecution upon this Messianic community. And we should also note that there's a large Jewish presence in this city. The fact is, because we see no persecution of these followers of Yeshua, would indicate that they had a very good relationship with the Jewish community and the synagogue because they are seen as Jewish and they're maintaining a relationship with the synagogue, they enjoy peace with the rest of the city as well. The Jewish community in Sardis was formidable. They found that there was a synagogue there that was the size of a football field, which is a large synagogue. And these followers of Yeshua's acceptance in the city is more than likely part of what will be spoken of here. Verse 2 and 3 say, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. And so what I want you to notice here is something has changed in our formula and that there is no encouraging words at the start. To me, that says that they're really doing nothing significant for the kingdom of God. It says they have a reputation for being alive. In other words, they have a reputation for being a vibrant witness of the Messiah, helping the poor among them, but in truth, they're dead. They're doing none of those things. It would seem that the problem here is lethargy in witnessing Yeshua to the Jewish community in the synagogue and the rest of the city. And that's no doubt why they're not being removed from the synagogue like some of the other congregations we looked at. They have become comfortable with the conditions. They're not rocking the boat. Something we should all understand is that when it comes to good deeds, the ultimate good deed for Yeshua and the Father is to be a witness of the good news to others because that's of eternal consequence. It's the ultimate good deed. It would seem to me that with the phrase, you have a reputation for being alive but are dead, they were once a powerful witness to others, but now they've grown cold. The phrase, I will come like a thief in the night, is common in the Messianic writings uh, Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. 
when they are saying shalom and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like a woman having birth pains in the womb. There is no way they will escape. Now obviously these folks aren't going to be confronted by the day of the Lord. It's not going to come upon them because they're so far removed from the day of the Lord. However, none of us really knows when that time will come for us personally. And so we need to be ready. And because at this time they don't know when the day of the Lord is, the wording may be intentional on Yeshua's part in order to get the readers will have a sense of urgency to repent and become watchful and again witness Yeshua to the city. It may be that Yeshua is again using the history of the city to make his point. Sardis was a city that was almost impregnable. It was almost an impregnable fortress. It towered above the valley of Hermos and it was nearly surrounded by high cliffs with treacherous loose rock. They were so confident in its not being able to be scaled that it was not well guarded which was the way both Cyrus and Antiochus the Great conquered the city. They scaled this treacherous cliffs during the night, entering the city at its weakest defended point under the cover of darkness. And so, in truth, they came like thieves in the night. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So while Yeshua did not give words of encouragement at the beginning of the letter, he does say that there are some who have not succumbed to this lethargy, and to them he promises what he will later speak of, in chapter 19, it says, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In the book, we're told flat out that these white robes that he's promises are given because of righteous acts. And again, the most righteous acts you can do is witness Yeshua to the lost because that's an eternal blessing. However, more than likely, they've forgotten a few other righteous acts as well. Yeshua defines righteous acts for us in Matthew chapter 6. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so righteous acts would be charity. We not only find this in the words of Yeshua, but righteous acts are also described this way nearly everywhere within Judaism. These acts refer to generosity to those who are less fortunate. The fact is, the Hebrew word for righteousness is zedekah. And it's also the term for charitable giving. The boxes for the poor within the synagogue are called Zedekah boxes. Listen to this tradition, and this is some Jewish thought on acts of giving. In his lifetime, a man has three friends, his sons, his wealth, and his good deeds. At the time of his departure from this world, should he gather his sons and say to them, I beg of you, come and save me from, this, from the punishment of death. 
And they will reply, Have you not heard that there is no prevailing over the day of one's death? Is it not written, No man can by any means redeem his kin? Therefore go in peace, rest on your couch. At this he gathers his wealth and he says, For you I have labored day and night. I beg of you, redeem me from this death. But his wealth replies, Have you not heard that wealth is of no avail on the day of passing away? Then he gathers his good deeds to whom he says, Come, save me from death. Do not let me depart from this world. And they reply, Go in peace. Even before you arrive in heaven, we shall have come before you. As it is said, thy charity goes before thee. So if you look at a Hebraic understanding of Yeshua's teachings, what you're going to find is you're going to be amazed at how many have to do with charity, giving to your fellow man. The problem here in Sardis is there's a lack of concern for their neighbors, both with material things and with eternal life as well. Isaiah refers to good deeds given in a not a righteous way as filthy rags in in chapter 64, verse 6. Wealth, unfortunately, often instead of being an opportunity to help others, that's what it should be, it often leads to apathy and to hoarding and not charity. And that must be the problem here in Sardis. At least there's something incomplete about their compassionate deeds. And this is a hard area for all of God's people because the wearies of this life, our desire to be comfortable and to know that we're cared for to keep us from being, actually keep us from being the type of the people of God that God would have us be. The importance Yeshua puts on this should not go unnoticed. There is also an apathy that can arise in our desire to witness Yeshua to others. And I see this in the church today and in the Messianic movement as well. The fear of being rejected by some, by our Jewish people, have led many to speak of Yeshua less often in their messages should a Jewish person come into the congregation. And not only that, but in relationships with the Jewish people as well. And to the degree that some say It's not even necessary to witness to our Jewish people because they have a covenant of their own. They don't need to confess Yeshua. Well, I don't think Paul would agree with that. But next, we have a Messianic community of which nothing is said of. Everybody wants to be the Church of Philadelphia, right? Amen? To the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so in this verse 7, he identifies himself as the root of David. And this is a title that will come up in chapters 5 and chapter 22 as well. However, when it says the key of David, it speaks of the one who controls the entrance to the kingdom, the one who controls who enters and who does not. It's the highest position in a household, or in this case, the kingdom of God. And this is actually a quote from Isaiah 22. And I wanted to read that for you, verses 22 and 24. I will set the key of the house of David upon his shoulder. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will fasten him as a peg in a firm place, and he will be a throne of honor to his father's house. They will hang all the glory of his father's house on him. 
offspring, prosperity, all the small vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. Now, I can't go into all of this tonight because of time, but to understand what he's saying, you have to understand this word peg. In the Hebrew, the word is yoted. And the tabernacle had these yoted. They held up everything. They were used in the construction. They were used to hang the vessels for the service of the tabernacle. And that's what we're seeing being said here. When it says, hang all the glory of his father's house on him. In other words, the key of David not only holds the keys, but there's nothing that goes on in the house that he doesn't oversee. Now he's what the entire house is built upon. And so understand that the key of David is a reference to the keys of the kingdom. David was the king of Israel and his son will rule forever in the kingdom. The scepter will never depart from Judah. And here Yeshua refers back to the visions. He's the lion of the tribe, the root of David, and he is the son of man. He can open what no one else can open and he can shut what no one else can shut, referring to the gates of the kingdom. He alone can open the gate for you. And if he closes the gate on you, there's no appeal. You're out of the kingdom. If he opens the door for you, no one can shut that door on you. How do we ensure that? Well, we just listen carefully to the admonition to these churches. Because <laughs> this all speaks of the finality of Yeshua's judgment. Now listen to verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command and to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. And so here, again, we have this term, the synagogue of Satan. And again, he had defines it as people who claim to be Jews but are not. And I think we covered that very well last week, so I'm not going to go over it again. But what we can assume is that the believing congregation here has been removed from the synagogue and are suffering persecution for their witness of Yeshua, quite the opposite of the congregation in Smyrna. And he adds something here. He says that he will make those of the synagogue of Satan fall at your feet. Those who have spoken ill of these followers of Yeshua are one day going to see the King Yeshua and realize that he loved them and realized what they have done and fall at the feet of these followers asking to be forgiven. The other thing of note here, it says that he is going to keep them from the hour of trial of those who live on the earth. Much of the book of Revelation speaks of the hour of trial for those who are not followers of God. The trials are meant to turn those people back to God. And what is being said is that if they hold on, there will be no need for them to suffer any trial. Of course, in every generation we have trials. We go through trials often. But if we hold on to the Holy One, He will keep us from those trials as well. He will bring you through those trials. But if you don't turn to Him, you're going to suffer for these things. Verse 11, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Yeshua adds here, if they hold on, again, the word for crown here means a wreath that's given in victory. However, there's more. These people have been removed from the synagogue by those who are speaking evil of them, turning them into the Romans, telling them they're really not a Jewish sect, not of the Jewish faith. And again, more than likely, it speaks of proselytes or God-fears and the leaders of the synagogue. Those who have been removed, he says, you will not be removed from the house of God, but you will be pillars in the house of God, not removable. So they may be expelled from the synagogue of Yeshua's adversaries or synagogue of Satan, but they are an integral part of the temple of God. Not a synagogue that will be destroyed in the hour of trial, but in the eternal house of God. That includes the Jews, those who through Yeshua have been grafted in to Israel, and those who hang on as well. It also includes the foreigners. Listen to what Isaiah 56 says. Also to the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai, to minister to him, to love the name of Adonai, to be his servants, all who keep from profaning the Shabbat, and hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called the house of prayer for all nations. Adonai Elohim, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares I will gather still others to him, to those already gathered. So this speaks very much of the non-Jews here in Philadelphia as well. Remember, these are Torah-observant congregations. They're the congregations in the east, not the west. And so they're Torah-observant congregation, and so they keep the Shabbat. That's why they, in some places they remained in the synagogue. But they're going to be a part of Adonai's house of prayer. Now, we see this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, and so we think of a city many times, but what is spoken often of as a city is the inhabitants. Remember what Yeshua said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you. He's speaking of the people. And in this case, these would be the followers of Yeshua or the people of God. The new Jerusalem is the inhabitants of the city. And if you hold on, you'll be one of the pillars of the temple within the city and you will bear the name of God, and you will bear the name of Yeshua. So these followers of Yeshua are praised for their deeds and admonished to hold on, and nothing bad is said of them at all. Not so much for the next city. The next city is Laodicea, and begin in verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So this reference to lukewarm is actually a reference to the water supply of the city. And so here again, Yeshua is using the history and the conditions of the city to make his point. Laodicea really had no water supply of its own. And the water had to be piped through underground pipes. And by the time it reached the city, it was actually lukewarm because of the thermal energy in the ground. There were hot springs nearby. And the people complained about the water. Not warm enough to bathe in, not cold enough to be a refreshing drink. And so he tells them that 
They are neither hot or cold, and so I will spit you out of my mouth. Of course, while he refers to the water supply, here's, he's really speaking of their deeds. This is a wealthy city. It's known for its textiles and its medical practices, and they become complacent. The problem here is apathy. They are neither hot nor cold. They're followers of Yeshua, but they're not acting like people who have been redeemed. They have grown cold in their witness of their salvation. Remember how you were when you were first saved. You were on fire for God, but sometimes people cool. And these folks have cooled enough that it's hard to tell probably that they are even redeemed. There is a reason for their cooling, and it's one covered up above. The fact is, he covers it twice. It's that important. He covers two churches twice, the same problems. Look at the things he covered more than once, because every time you see something that he covers more than once, remember the first congregations we look at were all paganism. That's a warning. Don't mix paganism with the worship of God. And now we're talking about something else, and he's repeated this same thing twice. First, resisting paganism and its practices and not being a witness of the good news, which corresponds to apathy and forgetting your first love. That's what he spoke up of above. But finally, he's now he's speaking of the deceitfulness of money. He praised Philadelphia for their deeds, even though they were causing them much suffering, even though they were suffering because of those deeds. And now he says to the congregation in Laodicea, you say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Here Yeshua is telling us what the rich look like from a kingdom perspective. From a worldly perspective, you may seem like you need nothing, but from the perspective of the judge, you're poor, pitiful, and naked. Because you have spent your life acquiring wealth, you've hoarded it, you've failed to acquire the wealth of the kingdom, which would have been good deeds. Notice he mentions being naked. And he mentions this again because this city is known for its textiles. He says, salve on your eyes because this city is noted for its medicine. Here's a midrash, a Jewish parable, if you will, that speaks about the kingdom of heaven. Just a story, mind you, but it has much truth. Our Yehoshua said he was sick and had an out-of-body experience whereby the soul briefly leaves the body and then returns. And his father asked him, what did you see in your out-of-body state? And he replied, I saw a topsy-turvy world. Those that are on top of this world, respected for their wealth and power, are at the bottom in the world to come. And those that are at the bottom in this world, the poor and the downtrodden, are on the top. And his father told him, you did not see an upside-down world, but an unconfused, sensible world. The kingdom of heaven, in other words, is a topsy-turvy place. The wealth and gold of this age is mere paving stones in the age to come. You know, when you read of the New Jerusalem having streets paved with gold, that's not a reference to wealth. It's a reference to the worthlessness of the gold. The wealth of this age is nothing in the kingdom of God. 
The only thing that matters in the kingdom is closeness to the Holy One, blessed be He. Now Yeshua is going to give many, many admonitions to the rich. We'll just look at a few of them. Luke 18, verse 24, Yeshua looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Let me just say at the beginning, the eye of the needle is not a gate in Jerusalem, as, as I've heard taught before. There was no gate in Jerusalem by this name. This is just a saying to say it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Just as it's impossible for a camel to go through the literal eye of a needle. You can see this terminology in other Jewish writings. Elsewhere it'll say, an elephant go through the eye of a needle, or a wagon go through an eye of a needle, or a rope go through the eye of a needle. It just means it's impossible. Luke chapter 16, verse 25. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. If you live in luxury and watch your fellow man go without, this is what awaits you. This is the moral of the story. Matthew 6, verse 24 says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. You see, the thing here is that the kingdom of heaven, things seem upside down. The rich are poor, the poor are rich, the first are last, the last are first, the strong are weak, the weak are strong. So when Yeshua says to them, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, I need nothing, but you need to realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, and blind. He's telling them what they look like from a kingdom perspective. If their wealth came at the expense of others or their walks and relationship with God, then through the eyes of the one in the kingdom, they are really poor and pitiful. Then he said, I counsel you to buy gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. White clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and put salve on your eyes so you can see. And what he's saying here is give your wealth to the poor and you'll have riches in heaven. If you remember, that's the exact advice he gave to the rich young man in Luke chapter 8. It says, Yeshua answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. The treasure in heaven is purchased by generosity one performs in this lifetime. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is a topsy-turvy place. And if you want wealth in the coming age, then give your wealth to the poor in this age. There's a saying that says you can't take your wealth with you. That's a lie. You can't take your wealth with you. But the catch is you have to give it away in this life. Let's read on. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here am I, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Where he told the Philadelphians he would keep them from trial, here he tells the Laodiceans just the opposite. He says, I rebuke and discipline those I love. In other words, 
there'll be no relief from the trials unless they repent. To the Philadelphians, he said, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Here he tells the Laodiceans, if you hear my voice, open the door and I will eat with you. All of this to say, wake up in turn. Still, what we find in this message to the Laodiceans, in his love and compassion, he tells them, I want to have dinner with you. If you hear what I'm saying, I'll open the door for you. I'll give you the right to sit with me. But you must wake up and overcome. So here's the ticket with these churches. Chapter 2, we had the problem of paganism. Not giving God the total honor and love that he's worthy of. And so they are guilty of violating the most important command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They have blended into society around them. They have blended into some of the pagan practices and they have not loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their might. These last two churches, Yeshua addresses the second major problem of men. Apathy and greed. A failure to help your fellow man, to help him properly with their acts of kindness and, gen- and generosity. He says, your acts of kindness and generosity were incomplete, which is a violation of the second greatest command, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if the church of Sardis and Laodicea are neglecting this in the second greatest commandment, on these two commands hangs the whole of the Torah. And so in both cases, they're living in a violation of God's law. Okay, so that's that. I'm glad we got through that. I, I don't like covering the churches. It's not fun. But now we're going to go into chapter 4. We're done with the churches and we get to some of the meat of the book because at least for me, this is the meat of the book. We're not going to cover much tonight now because time is short, but just cover a few verses here and see what we can find. We're going to get John's description of the throne of God. And there are similarities between John's description of that of Isaiah in chapter 6. It was going to also have similarities to Ezekiel's description in chapter 1. However, the manner in which John is given this vision of the throne of God is not at all the same. In Isaiah, there's no call. We just get details of the vision. And so, seemingly, it's exactly that, a vision. If we look to Ezekiel, we find something very similar. It says, the heavens opened and he saw visions of God. John says, the voice which I heard speaking with me like a trumpet, said, come up here. John is not given a vision. He's actually taken up. Come up here, it says. And now I want to show you some of what have been done with this sequence in the letter. Remember, just before the judgments of the congregations, if we omit that and paste one and four together, John falls down as though dead. And Yeshua raises him up. And now... Here, John is taken to heaven. So this is really unique because of that we get various interpretations. And we'll cover one of those tonight. Let's see what we find. Remember, in week one, he sets up the judgments of the churches and we're left off in chapter one with this awesome look at the Son of Man, the judge of all the earth, his ministry. And then we go on to the admonition of the seven churches 
And as soon as that is over, we get to chapter 4, and it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So understand that he's standing, and the gates of heaven are open. Now the doors or the gates of a city are open to allow people to enter or exit. And as we said in week one, remember we looked at ancient Israel, and this is where the judges would sit. They would sit and they would allow or not allow someone to enter the city. As an example, in the book of Ruth, if you read it, the elders sat in the gates of the city and rendered a decision on the marriage of Ruth and Boaz. This is the place where they would judge. The king or his representative, the governor, or someone would sit and decide on matters in the gate of the city. He would decide if you could enter or if you could not enter. Some gates, as I talked about in, I think, week one, some gates were set up with two gates and a passage in between them. And on the walls above the passage in between them, they would place archers. And if you entered into the first gate, it would close. And so you'd be trapped between two gates. It would close and you'd be trapped and you'd be at the mercy of the judge and the archers. They'd decide whether you come in, didn't come in, whether you lived, or whether you died. And when it says the gates of heaven are open, what is being said is there's judgment being made. I want to read from the book of Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1 and 2. In that day, we're talking about the day of the Lord, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps the faith. And this is great because it refers to the day of the Lord, the seventh millennium, and what we see is the gates are open for the righteous on that day. And that's what we're kind of seeing here. You see, Yeshua is going to sit in that gateway and he's going to decide who enters and who's not going to enter. And where it says God makes salvation, its walls and ramparts, the word for salvation there is Yeshua. Yeshua is going to decide. And no one goes to the Father except through him. And this is what would have come to a first century Jewish person's mind when he heard the gates of heaven were open would associate it with the start of the day of the Lord. And so the gates of heaven are open. Now I'm going to read chapter 4 and verse 1 again because there's more I want to read. The second part of it. And the voice I heard first, heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so we have the gates of heaven open at a trumpet blast. And then John is taken up to heaven. Until now, the vision's been down here. But now, we are in the heavenlies. And if we look at how this has been interpreted, what we find is this is used by those who are pre-tribulationists. And this is one of the things that they point to to show that the resurrection and the catching away of the righteous happens before uh, the events of the book of Revelation. And it's no wonder that they would see this because... Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For this we tell you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall come down from heaven with the commanding shout, 
with the voice of the archangel and with the blast of God's shofar. And the dead in Messiah shall rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left behind will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. And so the dead are raised. And those who are left are caught up at the trumpet call of God. You see how this is all fitting. Now, in Corinthians, it's spoken of a little different. It says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And so here, it's called the last trump. Now, without going into a whole lot of the whole nine yards, because it would take the rest of the evening, and especially since we just went through the festivals, the fall festivals, but for those who were not here, I'll give just a short of this in Jewish tradition, the trumpet calls of God are three in number. The first one was sounded at Mount Sinai at the giving of the commands, and it was the trumpet that waxed louder and louder. And that first trumpet, by tradition, was one of the horns of the ram offered for Isaac. The other of the ram's horns offered for Isaac, the last of the horns, we should say, and that will be sounded at the resurrection of the dead. And that, according to many traditions, will happen on Rosh Hashanah because Rosh Hashanah is the time of the resurrection of the dead according to Jewish tradition. Maimonides found ten reasons for sounding the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. I'm just going to read five of those as they relate to this. Trumpets are sounded at the coronation and God is hailed as king on this day. And so, in other words, it's on this day that the king will be coronated. The Torah was given at Sinai, accompanied by the blasts of the shofar. The prophet Zephaniah speaks of the great day of the Lord, judgment day, as a day of horn and alarm. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the great shofar, which will herald the messianic age. The shofar will be sounded at the resurrection of the dead. So the other thing that happens on Rosh Hashanah is the gates of heaven are open, according to Jewish tradition, and the books are open, and judgment begins. And so here in the early part of Revelation, we have that played out for us. In the death and resurrection of John at the end of chapter 1, the gates of heaven opening, the sounding of the shofar, John being taken up to heaven. And after these things, then the accounts of the troubles begin, right? So as you can see where people who are pre-tribulationists would believe that this is speaking of the catching away of the righteous and would associate these verses with that event. Of course, those who don't believe in the pre-tribulation, the catching away of the righteous, have their reasons for not believing it. At the onset of the study, I'm going to say this to you. I do believe one way. However, you're not going to hear that from me in this study. I'm going to, I'm going to convey to you how they arrive at these things, but I'm not going to go into what I believe. So, I want to read it again. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said come up here and i will show you what must take place after this and notice i highlighted what must take place after this and so the question is after what what is he speaking of after the judgment of these congregations uh is one opinion another is it's just a phrase that begins a new section it has nothing to do with the judgment or anything that we've read before and yet another opinion is that it would be a reference to John being resurrected, and, and that's, again, used by pre-trib people. And uh, we're seeing a glimpse of the kingdom after the resurrection and the catching away of the righteous. All of them have merit. All of them can't be right. <laughs> but you can, 
You can prove, I, I could stand up here and prove pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever you want. You can prove them, but that doesn't mean what's going to happen. One of them might. We'll all be surprised, I'll guarantee you that. Verse 2 says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And so now we're going to get this description of the throne of God. And if you thought the description of the Son of Man was awesome, well, this is more so. And the curious thing here for me is that John says someone is sitting on the throne. If we look back to Isaiah's description or Ezekiel's description, they don't say someone. They know exactly who's sitting on the throne. So it, it, it's kind of strange that he would say someone is sitting on the throne. Verse 3, And those who sat there had the appearance of jasper, carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald, encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And so here is the description and we have much the same description in Ezekiel. He describes a rainbow. He says in verse 28 of chapter 1, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day was the appearance of the radiance. And so there are similarities, and we're going to cover more of this next week. If we look at the government of ancient Israel, we're going to find that Solomon set up a system of 24 districts. And there would be one elder from each district who would come up to the temple and who would offer the daily prayers with the Levites and the Kohanim in the court of the men. From this description, it would seem that heaven is set up much the same way. There are 24 elders in the heavenly court. So again, we're going to leave off here because we're out of time, but we're going to pick up here again next week and we really get into some exciting stuff beginning next week.